This morning's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up from the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. The Gospel of the Lord. Got to enlarge my notes into a font size that I can read. We'll give it the old college try here. It'll be okay. Well, today's sermon is going to be totally political. And did that get your attention? I remember the days when I would have zoned out at the mention of anything political. Political was just another word for boring when I was young. And now political means infuriating. I'm not sure whether I changed or the world changed. I suspect, you know, it's a little bit of both, probably. I know. When you're young, you think the government is just there to give old people something to do. As I told my high school social studies teacher, um, he didn't care. He was usually kind of drunk anyway. But um, when you start paying taxes, right, you start wondering where on earth that money is going and what they're doing with it. Um, But anyway, I'm sure that politics has always been uh, controversial and irritating, and I've just slowly become aware of it. But it does still seem like our political climate has become increasingly intemperate, we'll say. Uh, It feels like there's a new storm brewing every day, and some of them have hit Christian circles. Uh, There have been not merely disagreements, but uh, divisions, uh, fellowship broken over things that are not doctrinal, but political. Uh, For example, you know, our church here, we weathered the whole COVID storm remarkably well. I know not everybody saw eye to eye necessarily on on what we should be doing as far as a policy, but we we stuck together. Um, But I've heard of plenty of churches that they had members leave, maybe members that uh, wanted a stricter COVID policy left, but then they added new members who left their old churches looking for a looser COVID policy or something uh, vice versa. A resort happened, uh, not because of theology, but because of politics. And of course, those COVID divisions often fell along political lines as well. I just want to clarify a couple things. Uh, I'm not faulting anyone for feeling some type of way about politics or political issues. Uh, Politics often involves matters of justice and liberty and compassion and the value of of human life. There's a little book uh, co-authored by Jonathan Lehman and Andy Nacelli I think it's entitled something like how to love church members who have different politics but they write that anger is the god-given emotion for responding to injustice if you hear of a child being abused you should be angry so big issues raise up big emotions and that's unavoidable and it's even appropriate 
I'm also not saying that Christians should agree on every political issue. I doubt that's even possible. The world is just too complex. There are too many issues that the Bible doesn't speak to directly. There's nothing in the Bible that I've found about school vouchers or congressional term limits or anything like that. Even if we agree on a moral issue like the sanctity of life, Christians still disagree on uh, the best policy or strategy or candidate for, for doing good in those areas. So the absence of emotion, the absence of disagreement are not the goal here. It's okay if you disagree with each other, and it's okay if you disagree with each other passionately. What's not okay is when it escalates to the point that earthly politics creates divisions and strife within the church. And I have this suspicion that one way to help maintain the unity and the bond of peace when it comes to this area is for us to go back to square one, meaning the scriptures, and ensure that our political motives and instincts are primarily informed by the word of God rather than the political parties or news media that we happen to follow. In other words, we're always reforming. We're always going back to scripture and checking ourselves against it because it's so easy to get sucked up into the earthly drama that's unfolding before us. We need to remember that as important as those things may be, we see an even greater drama unfolding in the pages of Scripture, and it's in that drama that we learn who we really are. So this morning, we're looking at just one brief passage from Luke chapter 20, which Cindy just read for us. So this, I'm not going to draw out a complete theology of politics from that as if I were even capable of delivering such a thing, uh, just based on one passage. Instead, We'll look at the question that was posed to Jesus and his brilliant reply, and I want to give you just a basic lay of the land for thinking about these things. Uh, there will still be questions about, we might put it this way, questions about the rules of the game, the best strategy to, to use, even what team to play for, but I want us to see how today's text sort of defines the, the boundaries of the arena so we make sure we're all starting in the same place, if that metaphor makes any sense. Did it make any sense? Was that, did I pull off a, okay, it'll make more sense maybe as we go. I don't know, I'm not good at these sports metaphors, but by way of an outline, we're going to review some context, and then we're just going to look at the question, uh, followed by looking at the answer, and we'll try to see what they tell us about how we see ourselves as aliens and strangers in this world, and yet ambassadors and representatives of the kingdom of God. So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you may remember that we've been looking at Christ's ministry into Jerusalem following his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. That's when he rode into town on a donkey as king with authority, humble authority perhaps, but authority nonetheless. Then he entered the temple and exercised that authority to kick people out of the temple, begin teaching the people. And we saw how the leaders in the temple came and challenged Jesus' authority, and he not only nullified that challenge completely, but he went on the offensive with this parable of the wicked tenants. The Jewish leaders of the day were the wicked tenants in this vineyard in the parable who refused to give the owner his due and ultimately hatched this ridiculous and self-destructive plan to murder the vineyard owner's son. And that doesn't end well for them. The owner will slaughter them and give the vineyard to others. And that's the parable that Jesus is talking about, or Luke, rather, is, is talking about here in verse 19. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived 
that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they are angry. Uh, They understand this parable well enough to know that it's about them and it's not good. But they respond by doing exactly what the parable warned them against doing. And isn't that ironic, don't you think? Let's lay hands on the owner's son, they say. But Luke says they're afraid to arrest Jesus themselves. He's already defeated their authority in the eyes of the people. Uh, So because of the people, they're afraid to arrest him. But uh, what um, what about Rome's authority? They watched him, sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. That's the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate governs Judea on behalf of the Roman Empire, on behalf of Caesar. So the authority of the chief priests and the scribes has failed to stand up to Jesus. Now they're going to try to throw Caesar's authority at him. Can he stand against Caesar? So they send their little spies uh, with a trick question, a question with, well, maybe there's a clear good answer, maybe there's not. We'll talk about this. So they said to him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Note the flattery that precedes the question. You know, we know that you'll give it to us straight on this. You're not going to tow some party line or give us the politically correct runaround. You're going to tell it like it is, trying to maybe disarm him, make him think that he's free to say whatever he wants, what he really thinks, egging him on to say something that is provocative, something that might just get him arrested. Remember, that's the goal, to get him in trouble with Caesar. So I take this to be kind of a leading question. It's not... Maybe a theological dilemma in their eyes. There seems to be a clear right answer that they are expecting him to give. Of course the tax is wrong. Of course God's people should be ruled by God alone and his anointed king, not by some pagan emperor who, by the way, claims to be a god. There's a reason. Now the reason there's a dilemma is if you say that, the Roman authority is going to get cranky, as in I'm going to arrest you, cranky. So to back up just a little bit here, talk about the political setting, Uh, you maybe are aware, but the Roman emperor, the Roman empire is ruling over the Jewish nation. Apart from the geographical setting, they are in their their own land, but it's still politically the same situation that the nation of Judah entered into in the Babylonian exile, which continued under the Medo-Persian empire and other empires. Politically, they're not living in the kingdom of Judah anymore. They're living in the Roman province of Judea. So they are, in a profound sense, still in exile. Just to put that another way, they're not asking Jesus what it means to be a good Roman subject. They don't want to be a good Roman subject. To be a good Jew, do we also need to be a good Roman? They that would have questioned that they wouldn't have thought that way at all. Way of thinking would make their heads explode. The question is, what do we do with the fact that this foreign power is demanding that we, play, we pay tribute to them. What do we do with that? Is it lawful to obey? If we submit to Rome's claim here, does that violate our allegiance to God, who has called us to be holy, a holy nation belonging to him alone? How can we be citizens of the kingdom of God while we are subject to this pagan emperor 
who, by the way, also claims to be a god, again, in their context. So this political general situation, this dynamic of exile, is also the situation that the New Testament church inherits as the arena for understanding the church-state relationship. This is not just a question or conversation Jesus is having about first century Jewish politics. This is Luke recording this for his largely Gentile readers, for their instruction as well. Just to flesh this out a little bit more, I could bring in other examples from the New Testament, but 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 11 is an excellent example. Peter is writing to the church, and he tells them, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You, church, are God's people because you've received God's mercy. And then, in the next breath, he starts talking to them about how to relate to the world. He says he calls on them as sojourners and exiles. And then instructs them how to conduct themselves in the world. Aliens and strangers. You're citizens of God's kingdom dwelling in a type of exile in something like a foreign land. Maybe you've heard the idea of two kingdoms. Uh, have you this idea of there's two kingdoms, an earthly kingdom and, and a heavenly kingdom? It goes back to Martin Luther. Or uh, you might be familiar with Augustine's concept of the city of God. There's the city of God and the city of man and, and how they relate to each other. Whatever you want to call the two and however you think they should relate, the idea of those two kingdoms or, or cities called church and state it's biblically rooted in this exile dynamic. We've inherited Israel's sort of relationship with the kingdoms of the world. As an aside, uh, don't jump to any conclusions necessarily about how I'm saying those two should relate. Um, Luther talked about the idea of two kingdoms to essentially say that they exist in this kind of paradox until Christ returns. They don't have the same values, but we just have to make the best of it. We're, we're part of this kingdom and part of this kingdom as well, and it's like we're living in two different worlds at the same time. We just have to do the best we can. Others have thought that the church, the city of God, should be about the business of transforming, or some even use the word converting, not just individuals, but nations and governments, maybe a little bit, you know, just so that they do their job of maintaining justice better, Maybe a lot, uh, to the point that the government makes Christianity a national religion. Still others say that the earthly order has fallen, and maybe we should withdraw, maybe a little, maybe a lot, so that we stay distinct and separate. You know, my predecessor, who most of you know, Pastor Mike, is now pastoring a, a Mennonite church, which is in that sort of tradition and has a different understanding of, of church and state. He doesn't quite agree on that point, but they call them anyway because of the things that they do agree on. What we should all agree on, though, is this, that Christ is king. And that's not a metaphor. He's not a metaphorical king. He doesn't somehow have authority that is spiritual instead of actual. Uh, he is king of kings and lord of lords. That is a political authority. All authority is given to him in heaven and on earth, he says at the end of the book of Matthew. Now, his authority now is, in a sense, hidden. Uh, we proclaim it, but he himself is seated at the right hand of God until he returns to judge the living and the dead. So we're not necessarily in a geographical exile, but in a chronological kind of a, an exile situation. We belong to the kingdom of the age to come. 
when Christ returns, but we are still living in what the Bible calls this present evil age. Might be best to talk about two ages. Might help to say, you might, what, what does this matter? Uh, maybe it helps to compare it to another way of looking at things because some have rooted the church-state relationship not in the exile, but in Old Testament Israel before the exile. So in this case, the, the church would be kind of like the priesthood while the, the state is more like the kings of Israel. One provides spiritual leadership, the other provides political governance, but it's within just one kingdom. You know, church and state then become like two sort of vital systems that function within one body. The problem with that is that it takes away the distinct identity of the people of God as a holy nation under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The church becomes an earthly institution with an earthly part to play for earthly purposes. What I'm getting at is this. It's a good question that they ask Jesus. They don't ask it in good faith, but it's still a good question to ask. How do we reconcile our allegiance to the kingdom of God with our responsibilities to the earthly nations where we are, earthly sense, we are citizens? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, there's nothing wrong with loving your country. Some countries are explicitly hostile to Christ, hostile to the church. In those cases, it's not difficult to remember that you are a stranger. Other rulers are more like welcoming hosts. Maybe they share our values in significant ways. That's a blessing to thank God for. But within the present age, we are still, in a sense, guests. If you never feel the tension in the question that they ask Jesus, never feel any tension between your allegiance to God and your responsibility to your nation, you might be making yourself a little too much at home. The church is a, or the church universal. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's not true of the United States or any other modern nation. And that dynamic does bring our allegiances into a conflict. So we can just blow off the government and do whatever we want, right? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> All right. No. <laughs> Not true. So Jesus doesn't deny the premise behind the question. There is this tension of allegiances, but he doesn't say that God's law nullifies Caesar's law or that Caesar's law excuses our disobedience to God's law. Here's his response. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. I want to start as we pick, it, pick into this, dig into this, with just a few things that his answer can't mean. First, just to clarify, this is not a politician's dodge. I don't think they're amazed that he so brilliantly evaded even answering their question. A clever non-answer answer, I don't think that's really worth celebrating. I also would argue Jesus is not compartmentalizing what we might call church and state. He's not saying, well, some things belong to the state, some things belong to the church. Never the twain shall meet, like two children arguing over the bedroom they have to share, and the solution is to put a line of tape down the middle so that they each have to stay on their side 
Because Jesus doesn't say give to the state what is the state's and to the church what is the church's. He says give to God what is God's. What belongs to God? That brings us to Jesus' important visual aid. Show me a denarius. That's a Roman coin. And whose likeness is on it? Well, Caesar's. Other translations would read whose image is on it. To those who know that their, their Bibles well, like people who were listening to Jesus that day, the word image sticks out like a sore thumb. This goes back to the book of Genesis where God says, let us make man in our image. So behind this idea of giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, you have the understanding that Caesar himself belongs to God. That's whose image is on Caesar's, the image of his creator. So Jesus both affirms Caesar's authority and severely relativizes Caesar's authority because Caesar is a mere man, frail child of dust. He's not the God that he claimed to be. He's made in the image of God, and he has a creator. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's because everything ultimately belongs to God. That's incredibly important, but I would argue it still doesn't fully answer the question. What if we follow up and say, okay, Jesus, but that's exactly what I'm asking. What belongs to Caesar? Is it whatever Caesar says belongs to him? Does this foreign ruler who invaded our sovereign nation really have a rightful claim to collect this tax? Could we see ourselves saying to the nation of Ukraine, just give to Putin what is Putin's? They might have some different ideas about what Vladimir Putin has coming to him. But the Jews were not much happier with Caesar. So Jesus is not just saying that Caesar's claims are legitimate. We need to be careful here. Um, there are two things, I, th I think, maybe to hold in tension. Uh, in John's Gospel, Jesus tells Pilate, the Roman governor, that Pilate would have no authority unless it had been given to him from above. And of course, Paul in Romans 13 says there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So earthly governments belong to this current age that is passing away, but they do continue to serve a good and godly purpose as we wait for the return of Christ. It still is an institution that God has put in place. As we'll see in next week's passage, marriage as we know it apparently belongs to this age that is passing away, but we still certainly honor and respect the institution of marriage today. It's no different really with civil authorities. But all of that being said, Jesus does, in a sense, undermine the civil authority, even as he upholds it. Uh, Jesus' tone toward paying tribute to Caesar, it's really similar to his attitude toward uh, the temple tax in Matthew chapter 17. Now, this is where tax collectors went up to Peter and asked Jesus if he plans to pay this, this sort of temple tax. And Jesus says, uh, well, Jesus pays it by having Peter catch a fish with a coin in its mouth. And if that seems like a little bit off the wall, uh, that's probably the point. Jesus asked, asked Peter, when they approached them about this tax, do earthly kings tax their own sons, or do they tax others? And of course the answer is they don't tax their own son, they tax, they tax others. So Jesus says then the sons are free. So why pay the tax if you're free? 
Jesus' answer there in Matthew chapter 17 has to do with offense, so that we don't give offense. Think of it this way. As the hymn says, this is my Father's world that we are living in. All authority belongs to Christ in heaven and on earth. This land, it's Christ's land from California to the New York Island, Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, and beyond those boundaries for that matter, because all lands are Christ's lands, and he's coming back someday to claim his land and rule his land. Meanwhile, what's our function? We are his ambassadors. We represent Christ to the stewards who are managing things in his absence. And so we might be tempted to think that as ambassadors of the real and rightful king, we've got full diplomatic immunity, right? We might be tempted to be like the diplomats at the United Nations headquarters in New York City. Have you heard of this, where they park wherever they want because they don't have to pay the parking tickets? Apparently this is a thing. There are hundreds of thousands of dollars in unpaid parking tickets racked up. Two problems with that kind of attitude. It doesn't represent your nation well, and there are generally good reasons for parking laws. Maybe some of them are over the top, but you can't just let people park anywhere. Also, for us, we do have to pay parking tickets, right? So two basic reasons to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We want to represent Christ well and not create offense. And also, Caesar generally does good things. Now, Caesar does some questionable things. Even some bad things, but generally speaking, things like punishing crime, making roads, are beneficial, part of the way God has instituted things in order to maintain some general order here and now. But it's more than that. We have a greater mission to give to God what is God's, and that is where the emphasis really falls in Christ's teaching. We give to God what is God's. We do that by giving our whole lives, our whole selves, to his service, to seeking first the kingdom of God and picking unnecessary fights with Caesar is just going to get in the way of this mission. So this analogy might break down, might not be the best, but I think it's a little bit like letting the kids win at Candyland or at least going easy on them because you're, you're a grown-up. You don't need to win that game. If you beat them... It's just going to create unnecessary offense and, and foul up all the other goals and things you have to do with that kid. You, you won Candyland. Good for you. What's your prize? You just derailed the whole bedtime routine. Congratulations. You're a grown-up. You don't need to win. You know that the world is bigger than Candyland. If Caesar can have this round. I mean, if Caesar's trying to interfere with the proclamation of the gospel, we're going to obey God rather than men. Caesar is acting in ways that are corrupt and unjust. We can talk about Christian ways to engage with that. If the kid's cheating at Candyland, we're going to deal with that, right? But for us to get sucked into the drama of earthly politics is like getting competitive playing Candyland with a three-year-old. We who are mature, who know that there is greater reality than what we see reflected in the outrage-driven news cycles. We should be the last to get carried away playing that game, because that game is not going to last forever, and when it ends, it won't matter who won it. It will matter whether we gave to God what is God's, and that's Jesus' point. Don't get sidetracked debating what belongs to Caesar. Just fork it over and get about the business of giving to God what is God's. One wonders if, 
and at least in some cases, churches would be less divided politically if we were more united in the work of the gospel and giving to God what is God's. Because here's the thing, Christ is king. His authority does win the day. It did in Luke 20, and it always will. He died and rose again to make us part of his glorious kingdom forever. And we didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. We were following the course of this world, the Bible says, following the prince of the power of the air, a citizen of the domain of darkness. But we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died and rose again, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That is the reason that we proclaim his gospel and make disciples of all nations. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name above every name, and every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nothing is going to change that. And if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, Paul says, we will reign with him. We will reign with Jesus. We don't need to win Candyland. We will reign with Jesus, and that's our political identity. That's our political home. That's our political party. Meanwhile, we can disagree on a lot of stuff, and we probably will, but we're all agreed on this, that Christ is king, and that's what we're here for, to put Christ first, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that through us, God builds his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we were enemies, we were hostile, we were alienated from you, we were following the way of this world and following the prince of the power of the air who is the devil himself. You sent Christ to redeem us, to bring us out of that slavery, out of that bondage, into the kingdom of the beloved Son, to make us part of your holy nation, your people that belong to you. We did not deserve this, but we have received mercy. As we think about the world, we see brokenness, we see sin, we see uh, tyranny, oppression, corruption. We certainly see animosity and hatred. We see fear. And it is difficult for us to think through how we react to these things, and as we've said, we many of us have different instincts and different approaches, different takes, but may we be reminded of the fact that Christ is King. May we be guided by the unity that that creates among us. And the sense of peace, to know that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against the kingdom of God, let alone the gates of the nations of this earth. 
Lord, we do pray as you have instructed us to do for the leaders and authorities whom you have placed over us in this world. We pray for their wisdom as they govern. We pray for their salvation. We pray that through them, you would ensure that we might be able to live peaceful and quiet lives as we are called to seek. But we thank you, Father, that even as we give thanks for the goods that we enjoy, you have made us a part of something so much greater. We had rebelled against you and it's promised to us that we will reign with your beloved son. May that be the focus of our hearts each day. And whether we need to engage or, or simply be at peace, may we be at peace knowing that Christ is on the throne. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.